following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. What is justice? What is fair between man and man? What is uh, equitable, to use a bit more of a sophisticated term? What is right? What's the right thing to do? How should we treat other people? If you had a piece of paper and you hung it on the inside of your bedroom door, uh, such that every time you left your bedroom in the morning, you would see it, what message would you put on there to remind you of the right way to relate to everyone else in your life this week? Everyone you see in your family, at church, at the Greenville Seminary Spring Theology Conference, or work, wherever you go, what would you put on that piece of paper? What would it say? How would it define what is right? And the right thing to do. In our text this evening, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, we have it. Jesus Christ gives to us what theologians have been calling for just over 400 years, the golden rule. The golden rule. I'll repeat it in the King James as a more classic expression. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets or as was summarized before the service, treat others the way you would like to be treated. Do unto others what you would have them to do unto you. This statement, it expresses the heart, the quintessence, perhaps the marrow of Christ's ethical instruction to his disciples for their good in the kingdom of heaven. In this brief sentence, I, I would imagine familiar to pretty much everybody in this room, except maybe the youngest among us. We have Jesus Christ authoritatively setting forth the standard of perfect justice between men, summarizing the ethical commands and, and contents of God's word. And what we see from this, from this instruction that's given to us, is a particular truth. Perfect justice among men is doing good to others by the authoritative word of Christ. That's what justice is. That's what is right. Perfect justice among men is doing good to others by the authoritative word of Christ. As one of the most well-known and most frequently cited teachings of Christ, in fact, I would say most well-known statements in all of, of human literature, and turn of phrase, it's important that we spend some time with it this evening. That's why I've selected it out of its broader context to preach as a standalone verse tonight. And we'll unpack this verse under two headings. In the first place, perfect justice. And then in the second place, perfect authority. That is the commandment of perfect justice and then the reason for it, Christ's perfect authority. As we consider what perfect justice is, we need to think about the object of said justice, 
and then also the rule of said justice. And that is, what is the scope of this justice, and then how does it play out? Uh, the scope of this command, what this command is governing for us, is rather broad. It's all of human action. It's everything we do. In fact, I would go even further, and based on what Christ has been doing in the Sermon on the Mount, it's everything that we think, everything that we will out of our hearts, even before the action comes, so too uh, this command has jurisdiction. But especially in Christ's case, as he's teaching his disciples, this has to do with the actions of his disciples as righteous citizens in the kingdom. Notice the first word in the statement. Well, the first word in English is in everything, therefore. Uh, but that therefore, it's what's called a post-positive, so it usually comes in right after the very first word. But essentially, it links the whole phrase to what has come before it. Christ is dealing with his disciples. He's setting before them a picture of righteousness in his kingdom, all the, stretching all the way back to Matthew chapter 5. And what he's saying here is now, therefore, in everything, in whatsoever uh, you do, do such and such. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. What is this righteousness that he's proposing that they pursue? What is this righteousness that the disciples are to be concerned with? It's described in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13, as thus. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here comes the clincher. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, your saltiness, your, your illumination, your enlightenment, your keeping of the law. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And when I preached on that text, I made the point that this surpassing righteousness is a righteousness of sincerity and truth from the heart. That's what Christ is dealing with in our text this evening. He's dealing with his disciples as men called to be righteous citizens of his kingdom. But he's also dealing with them in a second way, related to the more immediate context of what just came before here in verses 1 to 11. He's dealing with the actions of his disciples, not only as righteous citizens of a kingdom, but as wise sons of a good heavenly father. Notice what he says. He says, in everything or in whatsoever, that includes all that they desire as the sons of God. That is their holy desires. Not their desires for snakes and stones. Remember that, boys, from last week? We're not talking about snakes and stones. We're talking about good things, bread and fish, that which is needful for daily uh, life in the kingdom of heaven around the Father's table as you feast upon his goodness and that which he has supplied 
to his children. And in Matthew 6, 33, he said to these, his younger brothers, if you will, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then proceeding forward into our current section. That's the object of this justice. It's whatsoever these righteous kingdom citizens, these wise sons of God, would do in this life. It's whatever you and I think, say, or do. But particularly, that which we do in relationship with other people, with our brothers and our sisters, with our moms and our dads, with our coworkers and our friends, our, our husbands and our wives, uh, our classmates, whatever relation you maintain, with anyone whom God has put in our lives as a neighbor. But then he also gives us the rule of this justice, not just the object, but the rule. And the rule is that which we as born-again believers desire, namely righteousness, holiness, mercy, communion with God, peace with God and among men, and the glory of Christ and the worship of his name. In a word, the rule of justice that which we desire is human flourishing as it was described for us in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are what? The meek, the gentle. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the rule of justice. And what would these things look like in a human Society, well, on the macro scale, it would look like uh, a whole society demanding not, not the iniquity and the wickedness and the, the, the consumer culture that we see in our nation today, but demanding righteousness and truth. What would it look like on a micro scale in your life? Be turning back that clenched fist, letting it fall to your side when your brother annoys you or frustrates you, and instead putting forward an open hand of invitation for peace and reconciliation. And there's other illustrations besides. It's turning back the wrathful word or even suppressing and mortifying the wicked thought and of, of discontent and envy. Now, in what manner should such things be pursued in our relationships? Well, the manner of these things, the manner in which we should pursue this rule of justice is nothing short of Christ. Uh, likeness, nothing short than Christ's likeness itself. That which is described in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, which we read in our meditation. I'll read them again for you. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In fact, what it looks like in our relationships has already been described for us in verses 1 to 11. In the first place, not being rash and hasty in our judgments of others, but rather being charitable, believing the best of others, being careful to gather all the information we need before passing judgment on our neighbor, and also being wise in how we handle the things of God, not putting them before dogs and swine to be snarled at and trampled underfoot, but rather 
holding them as precious treasures, not being gullible, but perhaps even more essentially than either of these two things, um, the manner in which we pursue these good things, these expressions of wisdom and righteousness in our relationships is in prayer. We seek, we ask, we seek, and we knock for the good things from God, for they come from Him. We don't make them on our own. Now, the application of this rule to us, I wish to put before you a five-fold application, five different ways that this this rule that Christ gives us, this rule of perfect justice, of doing to others that which we would have done unto ourselves according to our sanctified desires, five ways that this applies to us. In the first place, it reveals our hypocrisy. This rule reveals our selfishness because we are prone to demand from others that which we are unwilling to give out ourselves, aren't we? And this is the pedagogical use of the law in that this is a summary of the Law and the Prophets, and we'll get there in the second heading, Christ sets this rule before us as a mirror to show us our sinfulness and our need for redemption in Christ. But the second way this applies to us, insofar as this rule is actually honored in, in human law and in human society, it restrains men from harming others, from doing that which they would not have done to themselves, uh, from seeking revenge or taking advantage of others. And thus we see, uh, I would say, a diluted form, uh, a, a thinned out form of this golden rule in other cultures where it says, uh, for example, I think Rabbi uh, Hillel in the intertestamental period had a version of it which was, don't do anything to anyone that you don't want them to do to you. But you see how Jesus takes it to a much fuller more substantive expression in the positive command, don't just avoid the things you don't want to happen to you, but rather do the things you want others to do to you, putting a positive injunction upon us. But be that as it may, if this rule is held up as a golden rule in human society, it will restrain men from doing those things which are harmful to others, from seeking revenge on their own. Also, insofar as this rule is honored not just in our society, but in our culture and in different expressions of culture, it will inspire charity, voluntary uh, taking care of others, and even benefit the commonwealth of all men in our society. And that's one thing I think that um, really sets apart American culture and even British culture from all the other cultures of the world is is the, the highly organized efforts of taking care of others uh, through charitable organizations and the like. And I don't want to get stuck there, but I think that's a helpful application for us. This rule has large-scale benefits to man, but more personally, for each and every one of us, this golden rule directs us to love others. Who among us does not want to receive love. Well, what Christ is saying is, if you would receive love, then extend love. If you would receive charity, to use it in the archaic way, then extend charity to others. If you would have others to do good to you, then do good to others. Express love for your neighbor. And what Christ is showing us is that there is a reciprocity in love. There's also an initiative taking in love. Don't merely be passive. Don't wait. But rather, 
Push yourself, get outside of your comfort zone and show love to others if you would receive it for yourself. And then in the fifth place, and perhaps most profoundly, this rule, this golden rule, this principle which Christ gives us in Matthew 7, 12, grants us the ability to maintain a clean conscience when we're faced with difficult situations and decisions in relationship to other people. What do I mean by this? If we're ever running up against a situation where there's no clear thou shall fill in the blank from Scripture, we can fall back on this principle. How would I want someone else to treat me if I was in this spot? And then on that, thinking through that question, answering that question with a sanctified uh, reason, so to speak, you can then move forward with a clean conscience to do good to others. Resting upon this basis in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Now, if we were to stop here in our text, halfway through the verse, which I've done before in a sermon, I'm not going to do that tonight, but if we were to stop here, we would have a recognizably good and even a just principle for ethical social action and relationships for uh, our legal system or whatever, one that most men would acknowledge as beneficial to society, as good for everybody. If we all did this, bully for us. That's a good thing. But if we were to stop here, before the word for, at the comma in our text, would we have a clearly biblical principle? Would we have a peculiarly Christian rule of life? Or would it, would it be a teaching which you and I as Christians would hold dear as sons and daughters of God, as, as words given to us by our loving Father? as a good thing for which we've been praying, for wisdom, instruction, and grace in our making judgments and, and relating to others. Christ definitively settles that question in the second half of the verse as he gives us not only the command itself, but the reason for the commandment of perfect justice. His reason is actually an appeal to authority, to a perfect authority, his perfect authority. For perfect justice among men is doing good to others by the authoritative word of Christ. And as we consider this perfect authority now under our second heading in the second half of the verse, we would do well to pose two questions regarding this word. In the first place, we would do well to ask, what word? What word is Christ talking about? Christ tells us that the commandment is the sum of the law and the prophets, that which he has come to affirm fulfill according to what he said in Matthew chapter 5. And we understand that to include the scriptures, all the scriptures, insofar as they touch on matters of justice and equity between man and man. So this is something of a, of a limited understanding of the law and the prophets. It's the, it's the scriptures insofar as they touch on equity, on justice, on what is the right thing to do, what's the right way to treat people. As Christian believers, we understand the law and the prophets to include not only the Old Testament books of Moses and history and prophecy and wisdom, but also to include the teaching of Christ and his apostles in the New Testament books uh, given to us by Christ's appointment uh, by his spirit for our faith and our practice. You see, the extension of God's inspired authority to the apostles um, 
is expressed clearly not only in a familiar text like 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scripture has been God-breathed and, and, uh, and given to us for and the various reasons, and, and also even Peter testifying that Paul uh, wrote under inspiration of scripture, but it's given to us in two places relating to our text. In Acts 15.28, at which point the apostles declare regarding their deliberative assembly as they're debating how to counsel new converts from, uh, from paganism, Gentile believers in uh, the, the way of the Christian life. This is what they say. For it seemed good to, not only to us, but to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And then they give their instruction. And in Ephesians 2.20, the Apostle Paul refeel, uh, refers to uh, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, bringing the two together. And so we see from New Testament witness that it's not just the Old Testament that Christ is appealing to here, but the totality of God's uh, revealed will for his people and then us uh, living on the other side of the closure of the canon. It's the Old and New Testaments together. We don't want to miss that uh, position here. Christ is preaching uh, the whole scripture as the whole Christ for the whole people of God. This word uh, which Christ came not only, uh, or not to abrogate or to obliterate or to blot out or erase or destroy, but to fulfill, and it is similarly summed up by him in Matthew twenty-two forty by Paul in Romans 13.8 and in Galatians 5.14 as uh, the summary of the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself as well. And we obey this law for eternity. That's what Christ is saying. That's his point. Parents, why is this significant for us? Well, if you think about the great directive of Christian education in the Old Testament, and echoed again then in Ephesians chapter 6, we are to set before our children what? The things of God, that which he has revealed for our instruction, not just redemptive history, but also evangelical duties, and not just laws and statutes, but also the gospel full and free in Jesus Christ. We are obligated to teach these things to our children, and God explicitly commands his people to instruct their children of his revealed will in Deuteronomy 6, and to teach their, uh, their children of the meaning of redemption, and particularly of the Passover meal in Exodus 12, and to hand down his teachings and mysteries in Psalm 78 and elsewhere to the next generation. And so the question that we're faced with when we, when we hear Christ make this appeal, for this is the law and the prophets, the question that we're faced with now is, do you love to tell the old, old story of redemption, full and free in Christ? As a church plant, we've pushed ourselves to get outside of our comfort zones, to get into our communities, as we're hopefully going to do later this month uh, down in Emory Park, down the street, to seek for opportunities to follow him in seeking the lost as he goes forth to save. But as Christ uses this phrase, the law and the prophets, let it be a reminder to us that we are first and foremost tasked to put the gospel before the rising generation in our midst. If we fail to do that, we are utterly useless as evangelists in our community. This is a great opportunity we have in Antioch with so many uh, young boys and girls growing up in our pews and under the ministry here. And fathers, are you diligently pursuing this goal day by day to set the words of Christ, the words of God, 
before your children, either in family worship or some other regular devotion. If not, then I challenge you, start. Have an ambitious goal to do it consistently. But even if it's just bite-sized fragments, it's better than nothing. And this is our duty. We mustn't let our children reach majority without hearing and hearing again that old, old story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and of his love. For the word that we have is the word of redemption that is ours in Christ and the word of evangelical duties, which we are pleased to fulfill for his sake. As we ask the question, what authoritative word do we have? It's the word of the gospel given to us by Jesus Christ. And this brings us now to our second question. We've considered what that authoritative word is, which we are handling, and now we can take a closer look at whose authoritative word we have pressed to us by our Lord. For the authority comes from him whose word it is. So whose word is it? It may seem as though Jesus is appealing to the word of Moses and of Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the rest of the prophets as he enforces his commandment with this reason, for this is the law and the prophets. And indeed, the doctrine of Moses and the prophets is equal to that of Christ, for it is one and the same. But Christ did not come contradicting or modifying the message of redemption and human responsibility found in the Old Testament he came confirming it and fulfilling it. And as we've said before, and we'll say again, he came perfectly fulfilling it for our sakes. But this word of the law and the prophets does not belong to Moses. It does not belong to the prophets and the departed saints of old Israel. This word is not theirs. It is Christ's. That's whose word it is. And Christ is much greater than them. His person is infinitely greater and weightier than theirs. And that's the appeal that Jesus is making. As, as Christ appeals to the law and the prophets, he does so not to enforce his commandment by borrowing from their authority, but rather he is lending his authority, giving it to them and to this summary statement of that which his disciples have received from them. That's the point he's making. He's coming as king, uh, dispensing wisdom and executing justice on the earth and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of heaven. And as he does so, he's confirming and even lifting up that which has been trodden down under the legalism of the Pharisees. And that is the law and the prophets. As Christ appeals to the law and the prophets, he's teaching us something profound about life in the kingdom. That is the standard for justice between man and man in God's kingdom. Christ is the fulfiller of the law. As the realization of the hopes and visions of the prophets, as the heir of all things through whom God has spoken to us in these last days, as the author of Hebrews puts it, he comes confirming this word to us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. In the words of our translation, so what? So what, then? Well, as Hebrews 2.1 says, quote, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. You see, our inclination as men and women in a fallen world is to be pulled away by those forces outside of us, and then to run willy-nilly in rebellion against God by that sin which yet corrupts our natures within us. 
And Jesus is setting this before us even now, saying, I am coming, affirming, even lending my authority to the authority of the law and the prophets. Do not drift from that which you've received. Because the word then is Christ's word, and because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, as we will see at the end of the gospel, we must heed this word as his people. It is an authoritative word because it is his. And who is he? Because the question, whose word is it, is only significant insofar as uh, the answer to the question, who is the whose, is significant and relevant to us. I've already said he's much weightier and authoritative than the, the Moses and the prophets, but why? Why? He's our Savior. He's our Savior King who sets us free from the condemnation of the law in order to follow him with gladness. He, uh, he is our Savior, and shall we neglect so great a salvation? The author of Hebrews asks. Shall you neglect the promise held forth to you in and by him? The promise of forgiveness, of pardon, of rest, but also of wisdom, of righteousness, of holiness of life, and of joy everlasting and following after the way of Christ. My friends, neglect not so great a salvation. Wake up and do not fall asleep, but rather run fast after Jesus who was and who is and who is to come, for he has come down for you as your Savior, for your salvation, and for your spiritual good and your perfect joy. So he comes not only accomplishing righteousness on your behalf, but also instructing you in righteousness that you might follow him in the way of joy and of life. That is his point in the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that is his point as he puts this before his disciples in connection to prayer and pursuing wisdom in judgment. To spurn his advances, to reject his wisdom, to, to set aside his instruction and his word, to, to, um, to forsake and unhitch yourself from the law and the prophets, as that false teacher Andy Stanley in Atlanta has put it about the Old Testament. To do that is to cast yourself headlong into destruction, to break yourself on the anvil of God's judged wrath, and to fall into the unquenchable fires of hell reserved for all those who reject Christ and his word. This is deadly serious business, isn't it? But is this justice? Is this fair? Is this equitable? Is this right? Well, it may seem that justice in human society is in short supply these days, but as a friend of mine put it, Earlier today, there's enough justice in this world to convince us that God will execute his perfect justice as judge of all the earth. An eternal separation from the love and goodness and beneficence of God is just. It is fair. It is equitable. It is altogether right for those who hate God and reject his son and suppress his truth in unrighteousness. May that not be said of any of you. The law and the prophets testify with one inspired voice to God's perfect justice. And Jesus comes fulfilling it and confirming it, not denying it. And they testify as well with one inspired voice to God's perfect love in Christ who came to lay down his life for his disciples and for sinners who absorbed the just wrath of God on the cross. That's who he is. 
he who secured for you a place in heaven is competent and authoritative not only to bring you to his heavenly home by his shed blood on the cross, but to lead you there by a way of heavenly living in this world, in his kingdom in this world. And such heavenly living among men is to reflect the perfect equity and impartiality and justice of God, as we read in Leviticus 19, but more to the point, as has been stated to us in Matthew 7, verse 12. Thus, we have this golden rule here. This golden rule. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophet, the prophets. This rule which... And Christ's voice instructs us that perfect justice among men is doing good to others by the authoritative word of Christ. And so as we go forth from this place to our various business this week and all the activities to which the Lord calls us, may we do so in reliance on his grace, seeking for his spirit to give us hearts that yearn to do good to others, not merely to garner some kind of benefit for ourselves, but to obey Christ out of glad hearts, seeking to follow after the law of God, which has been set before us as a rule of life and not merely as a mirror for our own iniquity. Let us seek the Spirit's help to pursue this justice which Christ describes for us in this verse by the grace of God in Christ, in whose name we pray. Let us stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven above, we confess to you that we have been unjust in all our ways, in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our deeds. We have treated each other with contempt, and we have coveted that which does not belong to us. We have envied our brothers and our sisters, and we have stomped underfoot the good of our neighbor in order to promote our own. Lord, have mercy upon us. Impress upon us, God, the gravity of our situation that we could not possibly seek for the good of others, much less could we possibly even pursue our own good with pure hearts. Lord, we pray for your spirit to sanctify us, and we ask you now to impress your law on our hearts as a delight, not as a burden, that we might be set free from the lusts of the flesh to follow after Christ, our Savior King, with gladness and zeal and earnestness and even fervent desire, and commitment. Lord, we pray especially for our sons and our daughters here, that they would have the gospel set before them, the gospel of Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension, that even now our glorious King is interceding on our behalf. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant us his spirit, his spirit of holiness and truth and of adoption to consecrate us to his service that we would be as willing ambassadors and soldiers in his army and even as heralds in his kingdom. Lord, we pray that now you would take these offerings which we are about to make and to consecrate them, dedicate them to your service. Lord, we dedicate ourselves as we give of that which you have given to us. And all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.